Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. Hey guys, welcome back to E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. Thank you so much for listening. This is the podcast where we speak with all kinds of unique and interesting creators in the world of entrepreneurship. And today is my fun conversation with Iristel founder, Samer Bechet. Iristel is Canada's leading provider of wireless and wireline IP services, and Samer led Iristel from a very small startup, which he started in his condo in Montreal, to now an international telecommunications service provider with licenses on three continents, North America, Europe, and in Africa as well. He's won numerous entrepreneurial awards, and in this episode, we discuss all kinds of unique topics, including the future of broadband technology and 5G soliciting business into Africa and beyond, the wireless landscape in North America, and the company's vision for the future of telecommunications. Without delay, here we go. Let's get to it. My great chat with Samer Bechet. Samer, thanks for coming on the podcast. I guess I'll start out by asking you, how does one get from being a systems engineer at the Canadian Space Agency to an entrepreneur developing a telecommunications broadband company out of a condo? I had these like servers and and wires running from one bedroom to the other. And and my friends would come over and be like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, oh, look, this computer is talking to that computer. And you know, you could do all sorts of stuff. And they're like looking at me like, well, so what's the big deal about this? I'm like, well, no, no, no. These servers could be anywhere in the world. That's the beauty about it. That's the whole point of the internet, right? So nobody really got it. But, you know, very few, uh, very few, I guess, were as excited as, as I was when they saw that. And, you know, so that's just the, from, a, from a backgrounder perspective, that's kind of my first intro to telecommunications, let's say. So when you were playing with this, were you still working at the space agency and you're sort of just testing this as a side project? Yeah, this was just like at night sort of thing. I'd come back home as a hobby and just like test things out. And yeah, it was completely aside, none related to to the space agency whatsoever. And is your background in computer engineering? Like what are the skills that you had to start testing this out? Not really, but obviously we took some computer courses. So I graduated uh, from a program uh, called Space and Communication Science. So we did like physics and computers, but not so much on any type of deep dive into it. It was more of a physics and a math than a, 
than a, than a computers. Computers is just a, a must have at the time because of you know the entire evolution of the you know the industry at the time, right? You mentioned you created a prototype. I guess I'm curious to know how did you create this prototype and was it costly? Did you pay for it out of your own pocket? Did you have anybody else working on this with you? Yeah. So luckily the servers were supplied on, on this drive before you buy a program from IBM, which by the way, I still have both those servers uh, till today. I want to mm. make a museum piece out of it one day, but uh, uh, there were some components and some software that uh, had to be added and customized and configured and to actually make it work with certain metrics. So I kind of, it took me a while. It took me about three months to get the whole setup going with kind of what I would call, you know, like off the shelf products. But I mean, really there was nothing off the shelf, right? It was really a lot of customized integrations and, and uh, protocols that were still not uh, standardized at the time. So when did this go from a side project to an actual business venture? So kind of what happened was when I got the prototype working in my small little apartment, I started finding out just doing some research about high cost internet or sorry, high cost uh, uh, long distance phone calls at the time. And if you recall, just calling like from Toronto to Montreal would cost like almost a dollar a minute, right? It, it, they were expensive. And if you called overseas, they would be even like two, three dollars a minute. And we're talking like Europe or, or anywhere. So uh, rates were quite expensive. And I came across an article about how like the African countries were paying an arm and a leg to some of the European carriers uh, to deliver some of these calls in and out of Africa. And that was kind of like a very high cost area at the time. And then I started doing some more research and I ran into some folks in uh, Cote d'Ivoire Telecom via email and I uh, started you know, just they connected when I said, hey, I could reduce your cost of, of long distance significantly. Would you be interested sort of thing? Right. So I kind of solicited business all the way in Africa from my Montreal apartment. And how are you doing that? Like how, what, what tools are you using to solicit business all the way in, into Africa? Literally phone calls. So I would get lists of, of who's who in all these telecom companies in Africa. So all the incumbent telecoms, hmm. so like Cote d'Ivoire Telecom, you know, uh, Sonatel for uh, Senegal. Uh, like I just went through a list basically that I got my, my hands on. I don't even remember where I found it. I think it was some magazine or, or some uh, publication that I that I was looking at. And I literally went through the list of who's who in those departments and I was calling. Uh, so my phone bills were actually quite high at the time because, <laughs> you know, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I would wait. So I would basically, you know, get up super early in the morning before I kind of went to work and I'd go through this list. And, you know, I got lucky with one contact and started exchanging some emails. And they're like, yeah, well, if you could basically save us this money. So part of the other challenge, there was an added layer of complexity with Africa, uh, which was, it was all running over VSAT. So VSAT stands for very small aperture terminal, which is like a small little satellite dish that you, uh, using satellite technology that allows you to, to get internet back then over satellite, right? And, and you can imagine back in 99, the internet was already 
slow as it is, and now we're running it over satellite, you have to make a lot of ends meet to kind of account for lag because you're bouncing a signal up like 40,000 kilometers and back down to earth, right? So there's Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of challenges that they were having. So when I presented the business case, obviously taking some, you know, uh, added, adding some buffers and stuff, they were really intrigued. And they said, yeah, if, they ma- if you make this work, we'll, we'll give you a contract. And voila, you know, made it work, went down there, connected everything, had to tweak a few things. Obviously, it wasn't straightforward. But this all happened within the first six months of me doing a prototype in my, uh, in my apartment in Montreal. So how long how long are you down there in Africa? You're you're working at the space agency. You have interest from Africa. You fly down there. Presumably, you close this first business deal. How long were you away? Yeah. So luckily, at the time, I had a lot of saved vacation time from a lot of overtime that I was doing from the space agency, and I just never took any vacation time. So I was able to accumulate about six weeks that. I was able to go down there. So I was down there. I think the first trip was about four weeks that it took me. And then I had to go down for another two weeks. But it was all within my vacation time, which allowed me to, because when you're starting a business, you're, you're kind of, you're not really sure. You're you're treading rough waters, rough season. You're not sure what direction it's going to take you. Is this going to be stable? Is it going to pay, put food on the table sort of thing? So like quitting a job or even thinking that direction was the last thing on my mind. I actually really loved my job and I was really lucky to, to even land a job like that. But, you know, so it was just more of a challenge that I, that I wanted to pursue more than as, as a full-time thing. So I always saw it as, Oh, this is going to be a part-time and that's it. Right. But So when uh, did you quit? When did you quit and then decide, okay, I'm going to do this full-time? The two years later, two years after that. So I quit in uh, 2001. I submitted my resignation because I just couldn't, you know, I just couldn't manage anymore. And I, I wasn't able to do, you know, handle, have a life anymore, basically. So was this putting, I mean, how much, so you've got the African deal. Were there any other deals that you were managing in addition to Africa that made you say, okay, there's enough revenue here that I can jump in full on? I believe the decision was made after my second African deployment, if I, if I recall co- uh, correctly, because at that point in time, people were reaching out to me to basically get deals done. And they had heard of us through, I had registered on the Canadian export site where uh, you, you kind of register your business, you put your qualifications, and then foreign entities can search for skill sets they're looking for. And that's kind of how I grew the business as well. And, and we got deals from Eastern Europe. They were calling out and I said, okay, I can't do this anymore. I, I don't have any more vacation time for starters. And, you know, that, that, and I can't do everything remotely, you know, working 20 hours a day anymore. So that's kind of how I, I made that decision. So I read something regarding the 2002 civil war in the Ivory Coast and the government sort of, there's some sort of a subsequent confiscation of your equipment or something forcing you to make some changes and shift gears. Can you talk a little bit about that? So one of the biggest challenges with telecommunications uh, operating in, in Africa specifically is it's heavily tied to the political landscape. And, you know, there's basically, typically in African countries, you have like three main sources of revenue. One is your uh, mineral resources or natural resources. And then you have your tourism and your telecommunications. So whenever there's a change of government, the presidency there always likes to keep 
those three very close knit to them, meaning if they don't know who you are or they don't like, let's say, the Minister of Communications, then they'll get replaced real quick. And guess what? Everyone else that's bringing in minutes or out of the country also gets replaced unless there is, you know, some special consideration given or something, which we weren't lucky enough. We, yeah, so basically they seized our operation and we even, you know, I didn't even bother going down to grab any equipment because obviously that was the last thing on my mind to try to <laughs> be worried for your safety. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it didn't, it didn't matter. But luckily we had been there for, I think it was about a year and a half in operating there that we had recovered all our investment, made some profit. And then, you know, we could write off all, all the equipment. And it was a lesson learned because the volatility in that area taught me a lesson to be, you know, just, just to uh, be uh, cautious, you know, and, and focus on what's closer to you physically, even with technological advancements and Skype calls and all that. It's just not the same having something. And that's kind of where I said, you know what, let me focus on Canada. We built this network that could support international minutes and long distance and, and calls, why not take it, bring it back home and start working on licensing with the CRTC here and, and all that. Okay. So let's talk about that. The trajectory from, you know, those early days starting in Africa and now Aristel being Canada's leading provider of wireless and wireline IP services, you are in three continents, North America, Europe, and Africa. Can you explain I guess the turning point in the business, where was it? And can you think back to a moment where things just started to hockey stick for the company? What enabled us to be successful here is even with all the regulatory hurdles that we encountered here, it's the support from our American and European partners that actually grew the network for us here because they said, oh, Sam, you're focusing on Canada now. You know, we loved what you did there. You gave us you know, we made we made lots of money with you. We'll support you for t in Canada. You build the network and we'll buy it from you. Right. So I was able to land deals from some large European and American partners against the largest incumbents here in this country that my supporters were actually outside. Not a lot of people in Canada know who Iristel is, but I assure you that a lot of the carriers outside know exactly who we are and what we do, you know, in Canada. Who are some of those big American names that people might recognize that helped open doors here for you? Uh, guys like AT&T, guys like, you know, Sprint, even, you know, Magic Jack. You heard of the little yep. device, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, these are household names that you would see at a Best Buy or whatever. And, you know, that they, they've helped us grow this network here in the country. And, and there's only one. So we're considered what we call a CLEC, a competitive local exchange carrier. We're the only CLEC in Canada that spans coast to coast to coast. So we cover all the 10 provinces, all the three territories, all the way up to the Arctic Ocean, a place called the Taktiaktak. We have facilities there that are ours. We run a network. And yeah. That's great. That's very cool that I took those European and American contracts to open doors here and sort of Canada came later was Canada last, I guess, in terms of the big markets that you're serving? Canadians are complacent by nature. And that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges that entrepreneurs in Canada face versus Americans are a little bit more of risk takers and willing to, 
to try something different and new. So how I ended up getting a lot of Canadian companies buying from me was not initially Canadian. It was because they heard about us through U.S. partners and then they started coming to us after, you know, I'm like, hey, guys, wasn't I just knocking on your door like five years ago and you completely shut in my face many times over, you know, because I'm, I'm pretty like adamant. Like when I when I put something in my mind, I'll keep following you. But sometimes you hit a, a, a brick wall and you're like, OK, I got to just take my time and energy somewhere else. So you mentioned the incumbents. So I want to hit on that a little bit. The Rogers, Telluses, Bells of the World, are these direct, indirect competitors do you spend much time concerned about your dealings or, or, or not having dealings with these folks? What's the relationship or the nature of the relationship between you and, and those companies? So I'm a big believer, Adam, in, in coopetition. And that's kind of what it is. It's, you know, we, we compete on one thing, but we're partners on another thing. So not everybody has the mindset here in, in Canada, unfortunately. And it's been one of my biggest challenges in growing the network here. You know, we've we've brought we've enabled a lot of our competitors to use our network. I mean, if you know, this is all public information. You know, like Magic Jack is our customer, for example. Just having a Magic Jack option alone has probably saved Canadians, you know, X amount of dollars per month. Problem is, the incumbents don't see it as hey, live and let live. It's more of like, okay, no, no, we got to make sure that Iris Tell is, is not there or we make their life miserable, right? And you probably saw some of the, so about uh, three years ago, we, through our ICE wireless brand, which is the mobile uh, brand, we launched uh, an MVNO. MVNO stands for a mobile virtual network operator, which is basically more like a marketing play where you don't own any infrastructure or network or anything but you can still deploy services. We launched something called Sugar Mobile. I don't know if you heard about it. I have heard about it. I saw some of the videos on it. I did want to ask you about the whole ICE wireless acquisition because I know that you guys acquired a majority stake in 2012. And I do want to get into ICE. So why don't I let, like, let, I'll let you continue and then I'll ask you a couple of questions regarding that. Yeah, so basically this, you know, when we launched the Sugar Mobile, just to kind of give you an idea, it was really a drop in the bucket compared to, you know, these guys had 30 million, there's about 30 million mobile customers in Canada, right? We were aiming for, to have about 100,000 subscribers. That, that was our entire business case with the Sugar Mobile. Yet the amount of fuss they created and fighting and, and even like they're saying, well, you're permanently roaming on our towers and this whole thing with the regulatory and we're like, no, 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 we're not permanently roaming because it's Wi-Fi first model. So everybody, and we showed the stats that we're 90% on Wi-Fi and only when people leave their homes or, you know, the Starbucks or the McDonald's or the school or whatever, they're, then they start roaming on that network. Anyhow, three years of battling, it even went up to Minister Bain's office where he kind of threw it back at the CRTC for a redecision on it, saying that it's good for Canadians. It, it just created a lot of bad blood. and. It shows that the Canadian landscape, when it comes to competition and allowing for that entrepreneurial type spirit and, and innovation, is not fostered. Like it's not being fostered nor promoted in this country. It's it's being killed. And that was a good example. And I have a million other examples to to show that you know it's it's the incumbents' way or the highway. 
as you expand and try and grow your business here in Canada, how do you get the CRTC to be more entrepreneurial and more on side with what the small guys are doing and less on side with what the incumbents are doing so that the consumer can actually benefit? What's happening here is we have this paradigm shift that has to happen, but we're caught in the middle between, hey, we charged a lot of money, for example, for license holders, let's say, to be able to roll out service in in the country. How do we now come back and disrupt that model that has been tried, tested, and true for 100 years, right? And so one of the biggest arguments that, you know, the Rogers will come back and say, well, we paid so much money to build this network. How could you overnight just open it up to the market, right? And little do they know, and they're able to convince the government because they have lobbyists night and day, you know, at the Hill trying to convince them to with, with that nonsense. Yeah, it's the same argument that taxicab lobbies make when Uber tries to disrupt in markets, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and this is kind of where that mindset of we got to look after the stock price and our investors versus no, 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 no. We got to look after what can potentially disrupt our business, because if someone else can disrupt it, then we better be ahead of that curve. Otherwise, we're in deep trouble. And because there's no incentive for any of them to move, we have three big boys in this country that literally dominate our market share. There's no incentive for them to the point that I almost wonder if if there isn't some form of collusion when it comes to pricing you know five like a month ago they all decided to increase broadband pricing or wireless data plan like all of a sudden all three of them almost within a week of each other just decide to unilaterally do something right and the only way i think is it's not going to be trying to convince government to do something it's more of showing them the path by having Canadians do something collectively, right? Like the the Uber movement, right? Like it's Canadians being employed. There's tons of money in the economy because of that. It has simplified everyone's life. And and I think this is kind of where we got to, where Canadians maybe are, have to step out of this complacency mode that we're in, in order to succeed from the asks that we're we're coming, we're coming after uh, the government for, right? So if we don't ask, we're not going to get. But if we also don't move and act ourselves, then we don't. We shouldn't expect somebody to kind of pave the way for us because it's not going to happen. We got to do it. I think Canada ranks among the highest in the G7 countries when it comes to wireless service, for example, yeah. if not the highest, right? Correct. Yes. So how come in other markets, let's take Australia just as an example, because it's probably the most similar to to our market in terms of population and landscape and everything else. How come Australians are able to pay X percent lower in wireless fees than the average Canadian? There's definitely a combination of, of different things. One, one of them is we've kind of been stifled here a little bit because of uh, foreign ownership rules. So we have very strict foreign ownership rules and you probably remember the whole uh, wind story and uh, 
you know, where the Egyptian billionaire came to invest. And then, you know, the industry Canada approved the spectrum, but CRTC said, no, it's not Canadian owned, it's foreign owned. And it was a big fiasco. So that that's a big factor that that has definitely caused some delay in our evolution path. And then obviously the second thing is the regulatory side, which the rules themselves, you know, so we have something called mandated uh, tower sharing rules, for example, but it's not enforceable. There's no, at least when they first came out, it's like, okay, Bell, you got to be able to share your tower with any other competitor, right? But there were no timelines. There were no metrics. There were no criteria. So Bell would come back and and say, well, okay, we got to do an engineering study to put your one antenna, right? And that engineering study is going to cost $100,000. Well, guess what? Why would any new entrant now do a tower sharing deal? They probably have to go source a new site, do it from scratch. Very, It's basically it's a very tiring process. And on top of that, the complacency side from, from the Canadians is like, okay, well, I'm kind of happy with what I have. Yeah, it would be nice to save money, but you know what? I make enough money anyways. I mean, you know, Canadians are well off compared to the rest of the world in terms of income and stuff. And I mean, we have, we're, we're very lucky here. So I think that adds to the complacency and it comes at a very early stage from the education system where, you know, you're, if you're not as aggressive or as entrepreneurial as you should be, you know, you're going to have food on the table at the end of the day anyways, right? We see it even in the school system now where, you know, everybody's going to pass. Like, it's not good to fail somebody. I see it because I, you know, I, I know my friends that have young kids go to school and that this is what it is, right? This complacency mode is starting at a young age. And I think we got to change that now before it's too late. But it's changing. I mean, if you consider the rate of inflation and the average Canadian salary today, which certainly isn't keeping up with the rate of inflation, food, just as an example, is off the charts. It's getting more and more expensive every day. Those costs are excessive for most families even in Canada. So while Canadians did have it good for a very long time, I think we're starting to really feel the pressure and Canadians do carry a lot of debt. And part of it's driven by the housing market, but there's all kinds of other factors. So I think the comfort level, like you mentioned earlier, how Canadians are sort of okay with paying the high prices and saying, well, you know, I have it pretty good. I make enough money. I think that's kind of changing now as millennials start to harness more of the disposable income and spending power and they're the ones that are kind of raising the flag and saying you know this doesn't make sense like why am i paying four or five x what my american friend just south of here is paying for his wireless plan it doesn't make sense to me can somebody please explain it i totally agree with you adam because the millennials are going to be the voice of change for us and you know, the incumbents are in for a big surprise because whether they like it or not, technology is changing so fast that, you know what, tomorrow, if all Canadians got together or or at least the majority said, you know what, we're going to do like a network sharing type idea, but for telecom, kind of like, you know, if you think the Airbnb and Ubers and decided to do it together, they're in for a big surprise. And guess what? No government, no incumbent is going to be able to stop the wave of 30 million Canadians having the same voice, right? So I'm with you and I fully believe that it's just a matter of time before 
government's going to have to realize that, you know what, these rules are going to be obsolete anyways, and we're not going to need an incumbent to give us access, you know, because they, they do the same song and dance every time. It's like, well, if you don't let us buy the MTS stock or, you know, the merger there, we're not going to build any more fiber. Well, guess what? You're going to need to build fiber anyways, because Google is going to be coming knocking on your door any, any day, and you better build your fiber today before it's too late, right? So you, the landscape is changing, and it's all thanks to this globalization and the internet and just evolution of technology. Give me the quick stats on how much market share these guys currently control. So Rogers, Telus, and Bell combined, of the entire pie, what do they represent? There's about 30 million subscriber, mobile subscribers in Canada. I believe there's about 9 million Rogers. I think there's about 8.5 and 8.5 roughly uh, between Bell and Telus. And the rest is all the other players combined. So I, I would say it's around uh, 3 million mobile subscribers that are split between like all the regional players and the 27 million between the, the big three. So where do you guys see the biggest opportunity for your business going forward? Biggest opportunity, I think, will be 5G. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 5G is, a, is kind of a term that's loosely defined. But the beauty about 5G is think of what happened with the telco world between legacy switches like the TDM world and then the next generation switches, the IP world, right? And the same thing is going to happen here. We have a good chance at making a big dent because 5G, nobody has 5G yet. Everybody's talking about it. And it's a clean slate for everybody. There is no network out there that is 5G. Are you guys going to be that fourth big player, do you think? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Yet to be seen. I mean, I, I hope I hope we can do something for, uh, you know, for the benefit of the consumer and, and make some money out of it in a, in a fair, equitable fashion. Why not? Why not? So what did, I mean, besides yourself or yourselves, Aristel, if, if you could give some advice to somebody that's disgruntled about their wireless carrier and they want to make a switch and look, look at something new, where would they look? Don't lock into any long-term contracts because there is going to be good change around the corner based on some new Spectrum auction that's being released. It's a matter of basically you know another year or so before we see some more players. Uh, there's also other good news with the mandated uh, roaming rates that are uh, lower in price now. We can afford to you know, whoever new entrants going to come to, like the Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver areas, let's say like the high dense populated areas, is going to be able to pick up a, a plan and roam anywhere in North America for very low or no roaming fees. There is a government initiative, kind of like what Europe has done, where anywhere in Europe, you don't pay roaming anymore. It's kind of, it started about five years ago and it's been phasing out year after year with a specific uh, metric. Same thing is coming to uh, North America. So I I just would advise against any long-term contracts because of, uh, you know, changes coming. It's around, it's not too far now. And, you know, just, uh, and and there's tools available to, you know, you could download the over the top apps. Sugar Mobile even has a, you know, a free app. You can download, do all your calls on Wi-Fi for free. There's a million other apps, you know, like the Skypes, the uh, the WhatsApps, you know, start using that 
more and more with less, less reliance on your, you know, incumbent operator, I guess. Yeah, it's great advice. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the, the lay of the land at Eristal now. So you started this thing in your condo, you were one. How many employees are you now? So we're about 120 people right now in, in, uh, in Iristel. And we, we have offices in Toronto, Montreal, obviously our stores in Northern Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, we even have an office that we maintained uh, back from Eastern European days in Bucharest, uh, Romania. Great team there. So yeah, it's, uh, it's grown quite a bit. For those HR people that are curious about how you recruit, how do you find talent or source talent? Yeah, I for any senior position, I basically like to handpick my team. And it's got to be somebody that I can hang out with. And, you know, I, I, I don't give, let's say, the resume the highest weight. It's more about the interaction and just that gut feel, the sixth sense that I that I get if, you know, if somebody is like a handshake kind of person that's trustworthy, to me, that's uh, that goes a long way. And that's that's how I've recruited my team. And, you know, lucky enough, I've we've had uh, almost 100 percent retention in, in our senior management team. I have people that, that are with me now for uh, 15 years plus. Are there any lessons that you learned as a child growing up in Africa and bouncing around like you did that you are thankful for that you take with you? in your career as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, one thing, one thing I've learned is, is, to, is to always be grateful for what we have and for what we don't have. You know, seeing some of the kids down in, in Africa and Nigeria uh, specifically where they were amputated because there wasn't proper health care given or famine, you know, families that, that are very close to to dying from from a famine because they're not able to to pay for food or support, be self-sustaining. It, it just you know it humbled me and and the lesson there is is never take anything for granted and always be grateful. Really. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Samer, thank you so much for taking the hour. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much, Adam. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is sponsored by Scriberbase, experts in subscription e-commerce. Visit Scriberbase.com for more details. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, 
All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Electric acid.